0: Howdy, and welcome to the 10-Week Bible Study. This is week nine, day four of our study of Esther. I'm your host, Aaron Hibbs, and today we're talking about Esther 9, 14 through 17. Well, Welcome back to the 10-Week Bible Study. Again, I'm your host, Aaron Hibbs. And before we jump into today's study, I, I wanna remind you to read the book of Esther 10 times in the 10 weeks. We've only got this week and next week left of Esther, but it's not too late to start reading it once a week for these last two weeks, if you will. You really will get so much more out of God's Word when you read it like that as we're going through these studies. All right, with that, let's go ahead and pray before we start today. Lord, would you open our eyes and our ears to hear what your Word has to say to us. Speak to us and fill our hearts with the knowledge of you. We want to know you more, not just more about you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. With that, let's jump into God's Word. I'll be reading today from the NIV. This is Esther 9, starting in verse 14. So the king commanded this, this be done. All right. The, the, this is let the, the Jews in Susa have one more day to defend themselves and attack their enemies and impale or hang the sons of Haman for public display. That was the request that Esther gave. All right. Back to this. Uh, so the king commanded this be done. An edict was issued in Susa and they impaled the 10 sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa 300 men, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. So again, there were 800 men in total in the city of Susa over these two days that attacked the Jews. So I think Mordecai and Esther, they had a sense that that the attacking in Susa was not done yet, that there were more people. And I imagine... They understood that there were a lot more people that were lying in wait to see if the Jews after the first day would let their guard down and then they're lying in wait for day two to attack them and I think attack specifically Mordecai to overthrow this Jew who's ascended to the highest seat of power. I think that's what's going on. The Bible doesn't make that especially clear, but why else would they have this second day only in the city of Susa I think there's a whole bunch of underhanded, sneaky things going on afoot. And Mordecai and Esther know that. And so they say, okay, give an edict to do this one more day. And so they essentially put all the Jews in Susa back on high alert for the next day. And sure enough, another 300 people show up to fight. I imagine that there probably would have been 3,000 or 30,000 or something like that. Right. Because I think the plan, I think I'm reading between the lines here, but just thinking strategically, I think the plan was in the city of Susa, where Mordecai was, where they can cut off the head. I think the plan was send out the 500 pawns, including the sons of Haman, right? Send those guys out to die on day one. Let the Jews. Revel in their success. They think, "Oh, we did it. We we're, we're, we we won." Let them get all the plunder. And while they're at home the next day, counting out all the gold, right? I think this is what the the strategy from their adversaries were. While they're at home, you know, feasting and counting out all of the gold and stuff that they got, that's when we jump them. That's when we 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 attack them by surprise. That's when we get our victory. That's when we attack and. And kill Mordecai and and we get rid of this Jew in charge of the country. I think that was the plan. I think when the edict went out, they canceled that plan real quick. And three hundred people didn't get the memo. Maybe they were the three hundred people that all of the people who got the memo liked the least. I don't know. Maybe they were the people that just still really just hated the Jews that much that they were willing to go out and fight a suicide mission. But whatever it was, this wasn't going on everywhere else in the kingdom, only in Susa. So the only reason I can think for that is that this is a, a genuine coup attempt, right? Because their day to legitimately kill the Jews is kind of over, but it almost seems like they want they want Mordecai's head and they're willing to do it on the next day. I think Esther and Mordecai knew that and that's why they asked for what they did. Let's continue on verse 16. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them, but did not lay their hands on the plunder. This happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and the 14th day they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. So this is a little bit parenthetical, right? We've had the second day of fighting in Susa, 300 people are killed on that day. And then we're talking, we're going backwards and saying, okay, but the day before everywhere, everywhere else, they killed 75,000 people that came to attack the Jews all over, all over Persia. 75,000 people came against them and they killed 75,000 men. But in all of these cases on day one in Susa, on day two in Susa and on day one throughout the rest of the kingdom, wherever they attacked, they didn't take the plunder. And we discussed why I think why that is, it's because they're, they're in their minds fulfilling, um, the command given to Saul when it came to the Amalekites and, and the King Agag and and all of his descendants specifically, that's where all of this has come from. I think they all very much understand that. I think that's the, the subtext going on throughout the book of Esther is this is the descendants of the Kings of the Amalekites trying to to annihilate the Jews once again. And it's the Jews overcoming them through the help of the Lord. And because Samuel told Saul do not touch any of the plunder from the Amalekites, I think that all of these people are definitely not all Amalekites, but they are walking out hundreds of years later, this obedience to that command that Samuel gave to Saul. They're, it's like they're trying to to. to um, you know, make penance for what Saul did wrong all these hundreds of years earlier that led to an Agagite, a descendant of King Agag, still being alive to try and annihilate them to this day. And so they didn't touch any of the plunder. They had full rights to it. The edict encouraged them to take it and they wouldn't touch it. Not a single Jew. Think about how if there's 75,000 of them that died and they were overpowered by a larger force, think about how many people there were and none of them, not one, nobody, nobody laid their hands on the plunder. That is a unified front. That is, that is amazing. I'm sure that the command from Mordecai is, Hey Jews, I told you you can take their stuff, but don't you dare do it. We're not, we're not going to touch their stuff. We're going to treat this as our obedience in place of Saul. To Samuel's prophecy. Don't touch their stuff. And again, everybody in the palace is afraid of Mordecai. And I'm sure the Jews must've been even more afraid of Mordecai. They're not going to cross him. And so nobody touches any of this thing, any of the plunder. Now, again, we don't have, the Bible doesn't tell us directly that Mordecai or anybody else that don't touch it. But I mean, this doesn't happen. Like this has to be a very concerted thing. If, if the edict says, take all you want, and then nobody, nobody touches anything, there's very clear communication going on in Mordecai. I'm assuming Mordecai is the one that says, don't touch any of it. And nobody did. Nobody did. Nobody enriched themselves off of this, even though they were allowed to and encouraged to. I find that really fascinating. And I find that the the, the main subtext going on underneath everything that we're reading in the book of Esther is they they feel like they are writing a wrong hundreds of years in the making hundreds and hundreds of years later i think they feel like they are writing a wrong they're obeying the lord when their king disobeyed the Lord. It was the disobedience that got them exiled in the first place. This ever-increasing disobedience that really, in some ways, started with that one act of disobedience. It was that act of disobedience that essentially lost Saul, the kingdom. Uh, So many things over the history of the kings, you can kind of go back, well, that was one of the first acts of disobedience. We're going to obey in his stead. I feel like this is th- these are some of the things that I imagine are going on inside the Jews' minds during this time period. And again, this is not the, just the Jews in Susa and what we call Persia. The Persian kingdom extends all the way to Israel itself, to the land of Judah, to Jerusalem, where it's currently being rebuilt by the exiles who've gone back. They're currently rebuilding in Jerusalem, and they're having a one heck of a time doing it. When we read um, Ezra and Nehemiah, we see all of the troubles they're going through, but this is inclusive of the land of Israel and the struggles they're having there. I I just, I, I love this book for what it says, but also I think what it doesn't say. I think that the the things that are going on in the background, the subtext that is uh it's almost, I I also, I wonder, like, why doesn't it just, why didn't the author here of Esther make this very clear that this is the reason they were doing this is because of Saul's disobedience? Why is it a, in my mind, kind of a wink, wink, nod, nod. He's an agagite. Let me rephrase that again. Remember he's an agagite. And again, he's like, he's an agagite. It says it so many times. And it, you know, tells us that, the Mordecai is a descendant of Saul. All of these things are set up in the book, but it never just directly comes out and says, and Mordecai told them, don't lay your hands on any plunder because of the disobedience of King Saul back all those hundreds of years earlier. I don't understand why it doesn't say that. But to me, as I read this, it's, it's just so evident that that's what's going on behind the scenes. And I, I find that so mysterious and so fascinating that the author here chose to write this book in such a way. All right. That's all I've got for today. For the 10-Week Bible Study, I'm your host, Darren Hibbs, and I can't wait to see you next time. Hey, thanks for tuning into the 10-Week Bible Study podcast. If you've enjoyed this podcast, would you consider leaving a review for it on your podcast app of choice? It really helps other people find out about this podcast, and my heart is for people to fall in love with God's word. Thank you.